Pastor Mike's getting really passionate. All right. <clears throat> so we are going to study um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 together. Um, and it is perhaps one of the most famous chapters of the Bible, especially during wedding seasons, because a lot of weddings, wedding ceremonies use 1 Corinthians 13 to celebrate that day. But as I was studying 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter of love, um, it was very, what's the word I'm looking for? Revealing and shaming and rebuilding. I thought, you know, we talk about love, right? Oh, this is good. This is an opportunity for me to warm your hearts about love. My heart wasn't warm, it was challenged. Because like I prayed about, the more we study about the quality of God's love, right, the more it will reveal how we're not like that. So as I was studying these chapters, this chapter, I realized three things. Number one, how amazing God's love is. Just by talking about, studying the word patience, it, it, it just floored me about how he's patient with me. The second thing, the first thing is how amazing his love for me is. That's what I realized. The second thing that I realized was how unbelievably unloving that I am. How loveless that I am. I think all of us most of us presume that we're kind of loving people, right? I thought I was kind of a loving person, right? My, certainly, my, my daughter tells me she loves me, so I'm doing something right. But the more I realize about God's patience, the more I realize I'm not patient, the more I realize I am not like him, the more he realize, the he makes me see what a sinner I am. And the third thing, that he makes me see through these verses is how much I need him. He reveals that the power to love, the power to possess these qualities doesn't come from within me. It comes from him. So I need him. So I think that's the format of this sermon and the next series of sermons as we talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's the outline we realize the greatness of the quality of the love of God in Jesus Christ, which reveal horrible things about us, and which hopefully the Holy Spirit will use to lead us to Christ. So a little bit warning, as I said, it's going to get uncomfortable. Ironic, because we're talking about love, and love will make us uncomfortable, like Korean dads and emotional expressions, right? I mean, it makes us uncomfortable, Right? When, my, when I dropped my son off in college, my wife told me to give my son a hug, and we just sat there and go, Ugh. It makes us uncomfortable. But these qualities of love not only will make us uncomfortable, it will reveal things about you. God will do an open-heart surgery to you and me. He will test what we assumed about ourselves so that we will go to Jesus Christ. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we talked about gifts, the gifts of the church, right? Like, in, like, like we said before, um, Corinthian church were crazy gifted, right? And there were people with crazy gifts and little gifts, right? And, and, and Paul is like doing organization of, about the nature of gifts. But as he, what he concludes in chapter 12 is I talked about all these gifts and the importance of, the, of these gifts. But Paul, at the last verse of chapter 12, says, but I will show you a more excellent way. The more excellent way that Paul talks about is love. Paul is saying, yeah, you guys are hung up on gifts. right? You guys are hung up on the outer manifestation of what you can do for God. But more important than the outer manifestation of what you can do for God is whether you have love. That's the important stuff. Why is love so important to the Christian? Love is important to the Christian because the very nature of God is love. One of the most fundamental qualities of who God is, is love. And he designed everything in creation, especially mankind, to reflect his loving nature. Right? God is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian. All three persons of the Godhead are equal in essence, and yet they're distinct people. They're one God, but three distinct people. It has been this way from the... There is no beginning. That's just the way things are, right? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Trinity, existed beyond any, before anything that was ever existed. What was the relationship like? What is the relationship like between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? These three distinct people, they submit to one another. They love each other. They fellowship with each other. Did you know that? Trinity is not just a confusing doctrine of the, of, of the church. It is the nature of reality. Father and Son and the Spirit foreverly, eternally, looking at each other, like loving each other, fellowshipping with each other. The Son submitting to the Father, the Holy Spirit being sent by the Son. It is this submitting, loving nature. That is what reality is. All creation was created through this fellowship. Do you know that? In creation... God the Father was involved. He spoke. The Word was His Son. And the Holy Spirit was hovering over the earth in creation. All three persons of the Godhead was involved in the creation of everything. The fellowship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it is in the fabric of existence. Did you know that? The, the universe wasn't created by a cold, calculating, indifferent kind of, a, of God. It was the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, loving each other, fellowshipping each other, and through that fellowship, it exploded. The universe was created in an explosion of this love. Human beings are made in the image of God. This fellowshipping, loving God 
What, when God created Adam, what did he say? Let us make man in our image. He uses the word plural. Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make human beings in our image. We are made in the image of a God who loves. It's in the fabric of everything. God is love. It just, it's just who he is. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. God passes by Moses. And as he passes passed by Moses, this is what he says about who he is. As he passed in front of Moses, God proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to, a thousands, to, to, love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. When God passes by Moses, this is what, who he reveals himself to be. He is a loving, compassionate, gracious, merciful, faithful God. This is how he says, this is who I am. It doesn't mean, his love doesn't mean that he, he's not just a righteous. That is why he's going to punish the wicked because he's also a God of justice and righteousness. But primarily, he is the God of love and compassion and mercy. This God created everything. Therefore, love is in the fabric of existence. Especially in the hearts, especially in the souls of human beings. Because we are made by this God who loves. Do you know it is impossible for us to live life without love? Do you know that? Without love, we will physically die. If you don't hold baby, if babies aren't held in the first six months of their lives, they will die. Without love, we go insane. What's the worst part of prison? Solitary confinement, being alone in a cell without any human interaction. That is the most painful thing because people go insane without love. I see a YouTube clip of a guy my age who's never married and he just posts, posts his clip about his life. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. Not only do we die and go insane without love, Everything that we do, we do for love. And I don't mean this is a cheesy, it doesn't mean to be a cheesy love song, Korean love song. Everything we do, we do it for love. Did you know this? Why do, you, why do I work until 2 a.m. in the morning every day? Because I love my kids. I need to feed my kids. I need to send my kid to college. Why do, I, why do, why do we, everything that we do, all the fathers here and mothers here, you work hard. Because you love your kids. That's the number one reason why you do what you do most of the time. For single people, why do you want to buy that expensive car? You want respect. You want street cred so that people will pay attention to you, so that people will love you. Why are we obsessed with, what, with the way we look, our bodies? Because we want other people to pay attention to us so, we, so, so, so that they will love us. Why do we post those, those food postings at Instagram? Why do we do it? So people can pay attention to us. So people can love us. Tell me one thing that you do is not for love. You do it for love, you know. 
Because it's ingrained in you. Because that's how you're created. You're created in the image of God who loves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving, creating all things through their love for one another. Love is ingrained in us because that's who God is. What is sin? Sin is turning, rebelling against God and his created order. And when we rebel against God and his creator, when we ignore him, our lives become contrary to the fabric of the universe. The fabric of the universe is that we love, we need to love. But when we rebel against God, the creator of all things, when we go against his created order, rather than loving, we go the opposite way. We divide, we criticize, we destroy, me first. But the Iran, and that is why the world is the way it is, right? We were created love, but people rebel against God. Therefore, people do horrible things to each other from the, his, from the first, from Adam and Eve to, to Cain and Abel, and on and on and on. Human beings do horrible things to each other, betraying the fabric of existence. Your life is like that too, isn't it? Is all your relationships great and peaceful and harmonious and shalom? There are people that you hate, and the people, there are people who hate you. That's the reality, right? There are people that you hate, and people who hate you. But the ironic thing about all this is people think we're loving. That's the ironic thing about all this. Even though the fruit of our lives is clearly evident that we are not loving, we think we are. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right, is the 18th century philosopher who created basically the modern state, especially education. He's the guy who said the state should educate the children. He's saying, Educating children education is really important, therefore the state needs to do this important work, right? I think he, his philosophy was the foundation of modern public schools. So if, if you're a teacher, thank Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau had five children. You know what he did to his five children? He sent them to the worst orphanages in Paris. The guy who says we should love children, educate their children, how did he treat his own kids? He sent them to an orphanage. He threw them away. In his mind, he thinks loving children, educating children are a good idea, but the reality of his life, he hated children. In our minds, we think we're loving. In our actions, it's contrary. Karl Marx, the number one philosopher that is influencing the world, including, ironically, members of the leadership of the evangelical church. Karl Marx, who's for the workers, right? The workers need to get power, right? Throw out the rich in power. He was for the workers. But, the, but if you read his biography, he hated workers. He was ruthless to, his, to the people who raised his children. He hated the common man. 
in your minds. In our minds, we think we can love. But the reality is we can't. That's the nature of our sin. Why are we like this? In the Garden of Eden. What did, this, what did Satan promise to Eve? Eve says, he, he promised, Satan promised Adam and Eve, if you eat this fruit, if you rebel against God, you will know good from evil. Right? That's what he said. And it's, and it's true. We do know that we should love. Right? We do know that love is good. Every Disney movie, every love song that I listen to on my way to work tells me that love is the way to go. But what Satan didn't, didn't reveal to Adam and Eve is, even though you may know love is good, you will not be able to execute it. You won't. Our ideals betray, our realities betray our ideals. It's not just Jean-Jacques Rousseau, it's not just Karl Marx, it's you and me as well. That is why we need salvation. We cannot be the people God created to be until we are born again with, to his nature. Our nature, because we're united with Adam, is, is contrary to love. In Christ, when we are born again in Christ, he changes our nature so that we will become conforming to his love. That's why we need salvation. That is why the evidence of your salvation is love. How do you know that you are saved? Is love growing in you? That's how you know. Forget what you think you know about the cross and, and, and God and which are important. The prime evidence of whether you are born again is do, are you growing in love? Is your wife, does your wife look at you and says, man, honey, you are growing in love. Are you growing in love? If not, you don't know him. That's what 1 John clearly teaches. You don't know him. Love. That's why Paul emphasizes love in 1 Corinthians 13. What is the definition of love that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13? The Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 is the word agape. Unlike us, we use, the, we use one word love to describe various things that we're, we're, we're affectionate about. Right? I love ice cream. I love Batman. Right? I love my kids. I love the color blue. I love Jesus Christ. Right? We use that love to describe our affection for Ice cream and Jesus Christ, right? Which isn't, yeah, which isn't a strong enough word for us, right? For the, for the Greeks, they had four different definitions of love. There are four types of love, according to the Greeks. The first one is eros, which is, um, because children are here, um, the excitement, right, that we, that, that over, overwhelms us as we encounter people that we're attracted to. That's Eros. We all know what I'm trying to say, right? Of course you do, right? That's Eros. You want me to spell it out for you, Sean? All right. The second, second word for love is philos. 
Philadelphia, brotherly love, is love between friends. Third is storge, general affection, natural affection, storge. As a mother loves for her child, that's storge. As a pet owner, as a, as a dog owner loves his dog, that's storge, general, natural affection. But the highest form of love is agape, which is self-giving, self-sacrificing love for the benefit and the flourishing of another. Greek used that, agape once again is self-sacrificing, self-giving, self-denying love so that the other person can flourish and benefit. To the Greeks, that is the highest form of love. And Paul uses that definition of love here in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Why? Because the ultimate agape love in the, in the foundation of the universe is Jesus Christ's love for his people. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. This is agape. That's what John says. That not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The very definition of agape, John says, is God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God sacrificing his son for our benefit. What is our benefit? The atonement of our sins? The new life that he gives? The, the resurrection, of, the resurrection that, that we will experience spiritually and, and in, in the future um, physically? And the hope of glory and the glory that will bestow upon us. In order to forgive our sins, in order to give us eternal life, in order to make us his children, in order to, for, to give us an amazing eternal destiny, he sacrificed his son. That's the very nature of agape. Paul says, if you don't have agape for your brothers and sisters in the church, anything that you bring into the church, what kind of gifts or abilities you may have is nothing. What God looks at us when he looks at our, our, our position in the church is do we have agape for our fellow brothers and sisters in the church? Agape, you need to be clear, involves both affection and action. I've heard so many sermons. I think I preached one of those sermons. So many sermons, I said. Love, they say what? They go, love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a verb. You, you heard that? Right? Love, love, love has no feelings. It's just an action. I think when I was a younger pastor, I preached such foolish sermons. It's not true. Agape involves having affection for your brothers and sisters. So much affection that you want them to flourish to the point where you are willing to sacrifice everything about you so that your brothers and sisters can flourish. That affection is agape. Look, when God sent Jesus to the world for his people, do you think he was, he was just cold and unfeeling about it? Like a Jonathan Nolan movie? You know, you know Jonathan Nolan is a very cold and unfeeling movie director. There's no warm, cuddly puppies in his movies. Is God, like Jonathan Nolan, cold and calculating? 
No. God so loved the world and his people. He sent his son. God sent his son because he loved the world, affection for the world. When Jesus did his ministry, he loved the people he was healing. He was crying over their sins. Remember when Lazarus died? Jesus wept. When people were nailing him on the cross, he took to ask his father, forgive them for they, not, they do not know what they're doing. Christ has affection for his people. Love is not just a verb. It is an affection. It is a feeling. God, when God restores love in you, he gives you the affection that, is, that you need to love. Do you know that? But love is also an action. It's not just affection, it's action. John, James chapter 2. If you say you have faith and yet you ignore the poor brothers in your church, if you say, I'll pray for you and do nothing about it to relieve the poverty of the brother in the church, James says, your love is not real. Your faith is not real. It's, it's imaginary. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He says, at the judgment day, I will divide one group, like one to the, I will divide the sheep and, 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 and the goats. Who are the sheep? The sheep are the people who proclaim to be Jesus' disciples. And they visited the poor brother. They fed the poor brother. They, 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 they healed the poor brother. They visited the brother who, were in, who was in prison, right? And the people who claimed to believe in Jesus and yet ignore the brother in need, did not heal the brother when he was sick, did not visit the brother in, in prison, Jesus says, I have no idea who you are. Agape, self-giving, self-sacrificing life for the flourishing of someone else, involves both affection and action. When God looks at your life, he will look at whether you had agape. When he looks at my life, he's not going to look at how well I preached. He's going to say, do you have agape? for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I was debating whether to share this or not. Right? What time? Oh, I have plenty of time. I'll share. Oh, man. We got, a, we got a new youth pastor, right? Man, I love that guy. And the reason I love that guy is like he texts us what he's doing. You know, like when you're, when you're new, you got to let your you know, superiors know what you're doing. Right? The guy went out to George Mason and did street evangelism. I'm not impressed because he did street evangelism, although that's impressive. But you can see the genuine love that he had for these strangers that he's meeting. It's agape. When I read that text, I felt so good. I felt so thankful for God bringing him such a person in our church. Not because he went to West Point and he's smart, although he is. But I think he's a man of agape. Are you a person of agape? Do you agape your husband and wife? 
Do you? Do you agape people in the church? Paul says, with that agape is nothing. Let's go. Verse 1. Now we get to verse 1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What is the tongue of men that Paul talks about here? It's the gift of tongues. What is the gift of tongues? Is supernatural prayer, right? That's what it is, right? Supernatural language, right? Acts chapter 2. Generally, in the, new, in the Bible, tongues usually, I think, is, is um, foreign language. That's why when he says tongues of men, it means the word men here means language of men. So the gift of tongues is when you pray and when you start speaking in a foreign language, a real foreign language, by the way, that is not your language and that you had no idea about that language and yet you start praying that language, that's a gift of tongues. Tongues of men is supernatural prayer that you lift up in a world, in a language that exists and yet you had no idea about. It's crazy supernatural. I had, a, I had that experience. Not me, but someone was praying over me. And like, when I was God, someone was praying over me and like, he was hitting me in the back. I don't know, maybe I was sinning. Like, he was hitting me in the back, right? And then he suddenly broke out in Chinese. Joke, joke, joke. I'm not going to be offensive. That's how I heard, right? He was speaking in Chinese. And afterwards, I go, you know Chinese? He goes, no. The guy was speaking to, praying over me in Chinese and he had no idea what Chinese was. That's the gift of tongues. They are super, people with supernatural ability, not, not ability. God blesses them with such gifts. I mean, that was the last time I heard a tongue like that. But they do exist. They existed during the founding, founding of the church. It's supernatural. What does Paul mean, tongues of angels? It means, we're not really clear what it means, the tongue of angels, but it's basically the language that angels speak. But there's nowhere in the Bible where we know what angels sound like, what language of the angels are. There's no one in the Bible who spoke the tongues of angels. No one. Right? People who, like, you know, people who pray in tongues right now, like, they think that's the tongue of angels? I don't think so. Do you think those beautiful heavenly creatures will say to each other? I don't think so. I don't think there's anyone in the Bible who spoke the tongue of angels. But what Paul is saying is, even if you have the ability, not only to speak the tongue of men, but even if you have the ability to speak the tongue of angels, if you don't have agape, the prayers that you lift up with the tongues of men, with the tongues of angels, is like, a, what is it? A resounding Gong or a clanging cymbal. What does that mean, a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal? It, mean, it can mean possibly three things. Number one, clanging gong or res- uh, resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Number one, it means it's just a meaningless noise. Right? Like, I go to the drum and I just like bang the cymbal. It doesn't mean anything. It's just wasted noise. Paul says, even if, even if you have the supernatural power, if you don't have agape, your prayers are meaningless. The second possible interpretation of this verse, if I just 
bang on the gong, 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 gong. If I do it, pound it over and over again, it will annoy you, won't it? What Paul could mean is, if you have these supernatural gifts, but don't have agape, the prayer that you lift up will be an annoyance to God's ear. Did you know your gift can be annoying to God? Did you know that? Did you know your service can be annoying to God? If you don't have agape? The third possible meaning is gongs and cymbals are what pagans used, right? During their, I think they, that's what they used during their pagan idolatry worship. So what this could mean is supernatural tongues without agape? He's saying, you're no different from those idol worshipers. That's how important love is. That's how fundamental agape is in the life of the church. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. You gotta, you gotta group prophecy and fanciful mysteries and knowledge together. Because what is prophecy? Prophecy is discerning the mysterious hidden things of God. God revealing hidden mysterious things about Him and His plans, and He revealed these things to people. The hidden mysterious things God, re- God reveals to certain men and women, and when those men and women reveal the hidden things of God, that is prophesying. In the early church, especially, right, in the early church, it, it, it involves future events. What will happen? Peter and Paul prophecy. God revealed where they need to go. And they went there and they declared the gospel. That's prophecy. There are people, I'm not sure how many people there are in the world, but there are people whom God still reveals his things to. I think they do. And they, and, 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 and they could, and it happened. For example, like when my father was here when I was like, what, 16? My father was here studying at Georgetown, right? And then like he left. And before he left, there was a prophetess in the church, right? Um, that prophetess, you know David Chang, the cook, the chef? His grandma, right, was that prophetess. So David, David Chang's grandma looked at my dad and says, you're going to go far in your career. You're going to, you're going to occupy a high, one of the highest positions in the land. And my dad goes, get out of here. No, he, no, I won't. You know what I mean? Like, if I tell Hill, Hill, you're going you're gonna to occupy the highest position in the land. Hill's going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I will. And that's being Donald Trump, right? But, like, like, you don't believe it. It happened. There are people, especially in the other church, with that kind of ability. God revealing his hidden mysterious thing. And they tell it, and it happens. But I think that kind of prophesying was restricted to the early church, I think. It may still happen, I'm not sure. But the hidden things, revealing, talking about the hidden mysterious things of God, now, for today, is, this, is preaching. Because what do I do, what does a preacher do? He studies the word of God, which, is the, which was the hidden mystery 
right? The gospel, Paul said, was a hidden mystery. Now God has revealed it to us. The hidden mystery of things of God is the gospel. And preachers are going to take this, take this, this hidden mysteries of God that was once hidden and proclaiming it to you. So it also can mean preaching. Paul says, even if, even if you have the power and the ability to discern all mysteries and knowledge of God, which is a great thing, and if you can just preach about it like no one else can, but if you, have, if you don't have agape, you are nothing. What you know, what you say is nothing. Paul says, if I can have faith that can move mountains, there are certain people, this faith here isn't, doesn't mean saving faith. It's a, it's, the faith here is the assurance that God exists, is the assurance that God will do something. There are certain people with this kind of faith. They are so sure that God will do something. Whatever they pray, it happens. God answers their prayers mightily. George Mueller, the, the 19th century orphanage, like, like guy who ran the orphanage, 50,000 of his prayers were answered. He sought God's will every time he needed something, and God delivered. There are people with that kind of faith. You pray, you seek the will of God, and God listens to their prayers, and those prayers become answered. There are people like that. But Paul is saying, even if God answers 50,000 of your prayers, if you don't have agape, you are nothing. It is nothing. Verse 3. Paul says, if I give all my possession to the poor and give over my body to, be, to hardship, if you have the ability, this is like the modern social justice guy, right? You, you look at the plight of the poor and you give all your money to the poor. Social justice guy. I will give all my money to the poor. Paul says, yeah, that's fine. But if you have no agape towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, that is nothing. What is, what is gave over my body to hardship? It means persecution. Even if I, even if I go through persecution for the sake of Jesus' name, for the sake of the gospel, you go to a remote part of the world and they will spear you and kill you because you are preaching the gospel. If you don't have agape, that sacrifice is nothing. It is possible to pray in tongues. It is possible to prophesy and preach. It is possible to give your possessions to the poor. It is possible for you to even die for your faith. Without agape. And if you don't have agape, all your abilities and powers is meaningless. Why? Because the clearest evidence of whether you know God or not is agape. The clearest evidence whether you know God or not is not your abilities. It's not. You don't know whether I know God just because I preach. It's agape. Love is not just this topic that just 
pastors like to preach all the time. No, 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 no. It is the fundamental fabric of life. It's a fundamental character of God. It is a reflection of whether you know that living God or not. Agape. What does agape practically look like? Agape's practical qualities of agape is, are the qualities that Paul lists in, in, in verses uh, three to, like in verses what? Three to seven. No, four to seven. What, is, what are the practical you know, characteristics of agape? What does agape look like? Agape, God's love, is patient. God's love, agape is kind. Agape does not envy. Agape does not boast. Agape is not proud. Agape does not dishonor other people. Agape is not self-seeking. Agape is not easily angered. Agape keeps no records of wrong. Agape does not delight in evil. And agape rejoices with the truth. Agape always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. That's agape. If you don't have these qualities, no matter what you do for the church, it doesn't matter, God says. What is the anti-agape? What is the, what, what is the love that is not agape? Ag, like Anti-agape love is not patient. Anti-agape love is not kind. Anti-agape love envies, it, it, it boasts, it is proud, it dishonors other people, it is self-seeking, it is easily angered, it keeps records of wrong, it delights in evil, it hates truth, it does not protect, it does not trust, it does not hope, and it does not last. May I ask you this morning, what is a more accurate depiction of your heart? What is a more accurate fruit of your life? Is it patience or impatience? Is it honoring other people or dishonoring other people? Is it self-seeking or is it others-seeking? Forget what you think you are, but look at your life, how you treat people. What is the fruit? What is the evidence of what you are like? Is it agape? Let's talk about patience. We're going to talk more about patience next week. What is the definition of patience? It's long-suffering. Long-suffering to the people who annoy you, who disagree with who fundamentally disagrees with you, who inconveniences you, who insults you, whom you find offensive. Agape says such people you have affection for and you act to do what's best for them. Is that how you treat the people that inconvenience you and bother you and cause you trouble? Or is your MO when people disagree with you assassinate their character in your hearts? Gossip about them with your loved ones. 
Give up on them, leaving them. Dismissing them, thinking, oh, they will never change. Is that your MO? Leaving them, gossiping about them, character assassinating them, dismissing them, being hopeless about them? If so, you're not agapeing. You're not acting out the love of God. You're the anti-God. What is it? Look, me preaching it, it doesn't make me a saint, right? Look, like this past week, one person said one annoying sentence. It, not at me directly, but it just annoyed me, right? All throughout the week, because I'm holy, I didn't talk about this to my wife, but all throughout the week, in my mind, I character assassinated that guy. Oh, that guy is dumb. He's immature. These thoughts, like, wobble in, like, go over and over again in my brain. What do I do? That event led me to believe, led me to the conclusion that I need Christ. When I ask you whether you are patient or not, or agaping or not, chances are you're not, right? Chances are you will watch more rather do character assassination and gossip rather than trying to love the person. Chances are that is more, more, more us than not. Then what do we do when God reveals that about us? It is then we go to Christ. Do you know that? The reason why God allowed me to encounter that annoying guy is to reveal to me that I'm not very loving. I thought that I was, but I'm not. Therefore, I need to go to him. Because agape, I cannot generate agape on my own. I cannot generate patience on my own. I need to go to him and pray about, about this. As I pray, he gives me the affection. He really does. And then I'll think of, about bad things about him again. And so I gotta I got to go to him, I gotta go to Christ again, so he'll give me new affections. It's like that. The reason why he gives you annoying people in your life is number one, to reveal to you how unloving you are. Guys, the most dangerous assumption that we can have about, our, about ourselves is thinking that we're nice, is thinking that we're loving. That's the most dangerous assumption, because you're not. If, you're, if you are naturally loving without God, you don't need the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will give you enemies to reveal how shallow your patience is, how quickly judgmental you are, how self-seeking you are. He will reveal things to you because we cannot know these things about us on our own. If you're impatient, and chances are you are, it is so that you will go to him and say, oh, that's why Christ needed to die for me. And you need to drink from his fountain so that he will change your affection. My mom's best friend is her worst enemy. It's weird. That friendship's been lasting for more than 50 years. And for the past 50 years, my mom is complaining nonstop about how, what a horrible person her best friend is. It's really ironic. Even now, when I go to Korea, she talks about that friend. 
For 50 years, she's struggling to love that person. But God has used that friend enemy to bring about salvation and sanctification in my mom's heart, I think. I think my mom's greatest act when God looks at my mom's life is how she strived to love her friend enemy. It's been 50 years and it will still continue. How do I know? Every time I call her, she talks about it. It's been like that for 50 years. God doesn't remove that friend enemy from my, from my mom's life. No. He uses it to bring out sanctification. There are some people in your life that you will need to live with for 50 years and they will annoy the socks out of you. He did it so that to reveal your lovelessness, your utter dependency on him. So that you know that you cannot love that person without him. You need to drink from his fountain. You need to take this person in prayer and say, Lord, I don't like this person. I'm so loveless. Give me affection for that person. And he will. He will. He will beat you up, but he will. Because that's what matters. Agape is what matters. Do you have agape? Towards your spouse? Towards your parents? He will give it to you. The nature of salvation, he, he, he saves us so that we can bear the fruits of agape. That's one of the main purposes of salvation. Drink from him every day so that he will change your affections that will lead to action. Let us pray. Let's take some time to think about what we just studied and listened to. Do you have agape? Is it possible that you're not as loving as you think you are? Compared to your love and the love of God that God God has for you, do you know that your love pales in comparison to his love for you? Do you know that the reason why God allowed certain people in your life, it is to reveal things about yourself? Do you know your lovelessness? If you're loveless, there's two possible reasons why you're loveless. Number one, you're not saved. If your go-to way of dealing with people is gossip, slander, hatred, judgment, and you have no qualms about doing so, perhaps it is evidence that you're not saved. You don't know the love of God. Or it can mean that your faith in him is very shallow, that there is no depth in your understanding of his love for you. If you're not saved which is clearly evident in your life. Pray for salvation. Pray for revelation. Pray that the Lord will save you. And if you're a Christian, having difficulty loving other people, pray that God will give you new affections so that you will be able to agape. Let us pray for these things. I think what the Corinthians misunderstood, it's the same thing that we, that we misunderstand. We think that you care about how we can contribute to the church. We think that as, as, as long as we somehow show our service to the church, 
if we can just carve out a little bit of our time for the church, and then, then you'll be pleased. That's clearly not the case. Because what you desire, what you look for, are people who, who love the church as Christ loved the church. People who love each other. People who agape each other just like you have agape for us. If there is no agape in our church, then maybe we're just an empty gong, a meaningless organization. Life happens when agape flows within the life of the church. We pray that that will happen here. The power of love does not come from within us. The world tells us that it comes from within us. It does not. It comes from with you. It is impossible for agape. It is, for us, it is absolutely impossible for us to be patient on our own. We need your intervention. Would you intervene in our hearts so that those who are not saved Get saved. Let us not hold on to the illusion of our salvation because we do certain acts for the church. May we be able to measure our salvation of whether by, by, by examining whether we have agape for each other. If there are people who are not saved, I pray that you save them. If there are those of us who have difficult time loving the people in our lives. Let us understand that you have given those people to us so that you will reveal our weakness, so that we will go to you. May people who have relationship problems go to you. Do not leave us where we are. We pray that for all of us, you will continually shine your light in our lives. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray.